Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Good day, friends. How are you? Good to be back with you. I'm grateful for uh, Adam last week uh, jumping in. Just had a lot going on and a lot on my mind in regards to my mom. My mother, um, she did wake up on Thursday, so she was, uh, yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> so she had been asleep for about 10 days, um, and she woke up, uh, needless to say, she's a little out of it. Um, something's going on with her voice, she can't really talk, um, so, and she's having trouble forming the words she wants to say. She really has to think through it and, and kind of get words out. Her Neurologically, she's fine, they said. Um, they said it's because just simply because her mouth was open for 10 days, the vocal cord stuff happened to him and things like that. So anyhow, um, I spoke with her, well, sort of, <laughs> yesterday. I talked to her, and she whispered a couple of things back to me. Um, so praise the Lord for that. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 12, actually. Um, we're going to start in verse, el- we're going to start in chapter 11, finish up a couple of verses that we sort of rushed through the last time we were together and I'm going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we do ask. We know that uh, millions and millions and millions of people have looked into the Bible. And some have come at it from a point of view as if it were literature. Some have come at it from uh, the point of view of a skeptic. Or some come from it at it with, uh, as if they're scholars and they're going to dissect it. But, Lord, uh, it impacts those the most that come, Lord, as humble disciples. Just looking to learn from you. And, Father, that's our desire today. We just want to come and sit at your feet, and we want you to teach us. And we're so blessed and so grateful, Lord, that that is what you continually do. Lord, you honor the heart that is uh, lowly that comes into your presence and just petitions you to meet uh, with us. And so, Father, that's what we're asking. Come, speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, I wanted to look at the last couple of verses of chapter 11, starting in verse 28, um, because I do think we went through it rather quickly the last time we were together. And if you were with us two weeks ago when we finished up chapter 11, you recall those words there, powerful words, well-known words, no doubt, uh, words that believers for millennia have uh, clung to. And it's those words in verse 28 that say, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I mentioned when we were together that those words are primarily dealing with a person's relationship with God. That a person no longer has to continue to strive or to work or to burden themselves so that the angry God will be appeased and let them off for their sin or whatever it may be. And so often that is unfortunately what happens with the religions of the world or with the systems of the world. There's this continual laying on of ourselves, these burdens, and that God will somehow be pleased. But the problem that we mentioned at that time is the problem is there's no way for that religious leader, that person, to assure you, you know what, now God has been appeased. 
God is content with the sacrifice that you've brought. I even made the point that really the best advice or the best answer that they can give is, we can't say for sure, but we hope so. We certainly hope so. And I'll tell you, that we hope so or let's hope so, that's a bunch of garbage, quite frankly. I'm kind of in a mood today. I'll, you'll pick that up here. This will be a truthful mood. I wouldn't even go on vacation not knowing where I was going and kind of go out on the road and say, well, we'll see what happens when we get there. Hopefully we'll find a place to stay. I wouldn't even do that with my vacation. Some of you are crazy people and you do that stuff. But I wouldn't do it. I'm certainly not going to do it with my eternity. And essentially that's what's being said. Whenever you say to a person, well, just do your best and, and hopefully when you get there kind of thing. That is no way to go into eternity. And it's not a plan that I'm comfortable with. And as we'll see, it's not a plan that the Lord was comfortable with either. And so the Lord says then, he talks to these listeners, and he says to them, come unto me. Come to me to trust me, to alleviate the burden and the consequence of your sin, to receive the gift of salvation that he, as the sinless one, purchased on behalf of those that were the sinners. He would bear the burden that none of us could ever, could ever bear. Now, I'm sure you remember Jesus' some of his final words on the cross. These, I think, were his final words. In John 19, he said, when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Now, that's an economic term there, that phrase, it is finished, and it's a term that means paid in full. It's something that if you were paying an installment bill over time, you'd finally open up your letter after 30 years, 20 years, 10 years or whatever. You'd open up that envelope from the bank or whomever you were paying off, and there'd be that red stamp across it that said, paid in full. No more payments have to be made. That's what Jesus is saying there when he said, it is finished. And despite the fact that you and my, our sins are as great as they are, despite the fact that even one sin would be enough to separate me from a holy God, and I have many sins, as you do as well, despite all of that, Jesus made a way. And he tells us in another place that he himself actually is that way. You know the verse, but let's say it, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father unless he goes through me. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The striving can be over. There no longer needs to be the burden of our sin on judgment. All of us at last can come and we can rest. But notice, I've chosen the words carefully. It, the striving can be over. No longer do we need to bear the burden. We can rest. Those are all conditions. Rest, peace, freedom are conditions, but they're conditions that are dependent upon the person's response. So those things don't just happen. We don't just have rest, have peace, have this, have that, and so on. The whole world doesn't just have these things because Jesus died on the cross, but they're a result of a person's response to the Lord's invitation. And so the Lord says, come unto me. You want peace? You want rest? You want to cease from your efforts? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He adds, look at verse 29 of chapter 11. He says, and take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, a yoke, you may be familiar, but perhaps you're not. A yoke is a wooden cross piece. We have a picture we'll throw up there. And it was fastened over the, the neck of two animals. And then with ropes or whatever it may be, it was attached to a plow or a cart that those animals would pull. 
And when a farmer was training a new animal to plow, the practice was to yoke an older, stronger, more experienced animal with this new trainee. And the more experienced animal, the yoke was actually designed that the weight would be put on the more experienced animal, and his job was to bear the brunt of the weight, and the job of the trainee was simply to follow along and to go where the more experienced animal was going to lead. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy. The burden is light. Now, you need to know this. In the metaphor, Jesus is both the farmer in the back that's kind of guiding the plow, but really in the metaphor, Jesus is the stronger, more experienced animal. And so Jesus then will bear the, the brunt of the burden on himself. And our job is simply to follow along. That's why the burden is so light, because he's bearing the brunt of the burden. That's why the way is easy, because he's the one leading the way. You as the trainee don't have to do anything. You just keep walking along with him and go where he may go. I'm going to be honest with you, as opposed to lying to you, as you know. But I'll be honest with you. I have come to discover that I cannot walk as a follower of Christ consistently. I could do it from time to time. I get kind of, I'm in a good mood or whatever. I had a good sleep or whatever. And I can kind of be in a good mood and do that from time to time. But the reality is over an extended period of time, I can't do it. I can't walk the walk of Christ. Inevitably, I'm going to crack. I'm going to break. It's going to come out in frustration or anger or this or that, whatever it may be. And so I am not strong enough to do it. And to be quite honest, I don't even know where I'm going. But if you strap me to Jesus and just say, hey, you know what? He's going to drag you along and you're going with him. I can do that. I can do that, and I'm t- quite content in that, and so can you, my friends. Now, there's an interesting thing. This word here that we have in the English language, easy, he says, my yoke is easy. It's a Greek word, and it's a word which means well-fitting. Now, you didn't just go to the yoke store, and you know they had a whole bunch that were hanging up there, and you said, you know, that one looks nice. I, I like the, the shade of it or something like that. But every yoke was specifically designed for each animal. And so the yoke you would, you know, the farmer would come or I'm more likely I suspect the yoke maker would go out to the farm and however they did this, they would take kind of measurements of the particular animal or animals that this yoke was going to be for. And they would design the yoke specifically for that animal. So Jesus says my yoke is easy, that could be translated well fitting. It's specifically designed for that particular animal. Otherwise, you're going to have all sorts of chafing in the neck and you're going to injure the animal if he had one that was too loose or one that was too tight. Yokes were not one size fit all, but instead they were carefully crafted to fit the neck of each animal. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, all right, my friend, can we move on from the farming lessons and get on to something else? Well, here's the point that I want to make. The yoke that Jesus has carefully crafted for you that he himself is going to slip in right beside of you is perfectly designed for you. And I think that's very, very significant for us to understand. Every one of us has different, a different yoke, so to speak. Every one of us, Jesus is going to take kind of down a slightly different path. We're going to have to go through certain things, deal with certain things that maybe the other person over there isn't going to be having to deal with. And we may look at something like that and think, well, this isn't fair. Why do they got this kind of piece of cake life and I got to go through these things over here? But here's the point. The yoke that the Lord has laid on your neck is perfectly crafted for you. And he's going to take you down that particular path that you're called to go down perfectly. And your job is just to simply 
go with the flow of Jesus. You know, I think about the gazillion other things that people yoke themselves to, humanly speaking. Things that take them down all sorts of other paths. paths, Worldliness, so many people yoke themselves to. A party lifestyle. Fame and fortune and running after it. Or pretending they have it. Popularity, if I could just do this and that. And it's a yoke. And if that's the thing you want to seek after, then you're going to become a slave to that thing. And you have to run after that thing. Selfishness and so on. All of these things that make us their master but all things that end up burdening us and ultimately enslaving us. And so Jesus says, come unto me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus says, essentially, I have carefully crafted a yoke designed perfectly, fitted for you, to take you to the place that I intend for you to be and to accomplish the work that I intend for you to accomplish. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now there's a final verse here. Notice what it, or a point, I mean, look in, in verse, I guess, 29. It says, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest, peace, a, a cessation of the labor. You know, that reminds me of the Old Testament Sabbath day. And on the Old Testament Sabbath day, man was to cease from his labor and just rest in the presence of the Lord for that day. Now, the book of Hebrews explains the Sabbath. And explains to us that Jesus himself, that rest, is ultimately Jesus. That he brings it and that he ultimately is it. And so here when we read, you will find rest for your souls. Your souls will will be at that place of peace in Christ. Now, let me ask you, does that define your walk with Jesus? Is your soul at rest? Are you at peace in your walk with the Lord? Or are you wearied? Are you burdened? Is the Christian walk too difficult, too hard? It's always a struggle for me because of all the things that you must do for the Lord. If that is your mindset, respectfully, I'll suggest this to you. I'll say this to you. You're not understanding what the Christian faith is supposed to be. You're not supposed to be burdened. You're not supposed to be heavy laden. You're not supposed to be pushed down with all the struggles of how hard it is to be a good person. Or how hard it is to always do the right thing. You're missing the point. Come to the Lord. Allow him to slip his yoke over your neck. And go with the flow and obedience with him wherever he may lead. And then you'll find, and I've, I've discovered this. You know, I think a lot of Christians, they want to have some experience. want to go to that place and I want to walk out of there with goosebumps. I want, to have, I want to have this experience. And I've been there, and I, I have those experiences. I get goosebumps from time to time or whatever. Sometimes just a cold breeze blowing through the house, you know. <laughs> but sometimes related to, you know, some religious thing or, that I'm at or a, an event that I'm at. But the reality, what I have come to discover over the years of seeking to walk with the Lord is just the peace of his presence on a daily basis. And just to know that he is there in my life in every circumstance that I go through, and I can just walk with him and enjoy his presence. And I believe that's the peace that he would have each one of us to have and to enjoy. And so he says that in these closing verses of 11. Now let's go on to chapter 12, because chapter 12 I think you can look at as sort of the lab experience. You ever go to college or high school or something, and so you learn, you learn sort of the lesson, the lecture, 
and then you go to the lab to kind of put it in practice or see how it works out in the, the daily. When I was in college, I did a, everything I could, Mark, you'll like this, to avoid science class. We had to take two science classes. I, everything I could, I tried to get political science as one of those sciences, but they wouldn't let me. And so I did everything I could to avoid them. And eventually, we had to do two sciences and a lab. And it just wouldn't work out because I avoided it until I was like a junior or whatever. And so I found myself in a class about rocks, which I believe is geology, I think. So I was in a class about rocks, but I was taking a lab in chemistry. And that doesn't quite work, you know, there. So it was quite a mess. But the lab experience is designed to enhance what you're learning in the classroom. And thus I had acid all over me or whatever. It was just, it was a real problem. So anyway, chapter 12 is sort of the lab experience here. Let's take a look of, from what they were teaching in verse, chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, excuse me, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profaned the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now let's go back and look at those verses. Starting in verse 1, you have Jesus and his disciples going through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. They're men, so they're hungry, because men are always hungry, it seems. And so his disciples were hungry as they walked, and they began to just pluck heads of grain off. If you've ever walked through sort of a wheat field or something like that, you know, you just kind of pull them with your hand there. They begin to pluck heads of grain and then to eat them. And we look at that, and, you know, part of it's like, they're stealing. Oh, my gosh, what kind of disciples are these? They're going into another man's farm and stealing his produce. But they, they actually aren't stealing. There was a provision in the Old Testament, that in the nation of Israel, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 23, that people were allowed to do this. If they were making their way through a field, that they were allowed to actually pick grains. I'll read it to you. It says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So they couldn't pull up with a tractor and, you know, and take everything away uh, with them, but they could grab an ear of corn, they didn't have corn there, but they could grab the grain or whatever it may be and start to eat. So the Pharisees aren't concerned that they're stealing this guy's grain. The key phrase in this verse is where it says in verse 1 that they went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. That's their concern that they're taking this food, plucking this grain there on the Sabbath. That's the um, problem the Pharisees are seeing there. And in their mind, Jesus' disciples are violating a whole host of restrictions against what was and was not allowed on the Sabbath. So in their mind, when they pick the grain and they just kind of pull it off of uh, the stalk or whatever it is there, that's harvesting. And according to their rules, you couldn't harvest on the Sabbath. In their mind, when they would rub it, so they would take it and they would rub it in their hands, well, that rubbing of the grain, that would be threshing. And then when they would basically take out the good stuff and blow the bad stuff away and then eat it, that is winnowing. And threshing, harvesting, threshing, and winnowing, those were not allowed. 
according to their tradition. Now, this is what the Bible says about the Sabbath day. This is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. It says, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, and you shall do no work. It is the Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwelling places. So that's all it says. And I think it's a perfect example, what we're about to see here, it's a perfect example of what Jesus was addressing in the previous chapter about laying burdens on people, man-made regulations, because that's what these religious leaders would do. And they were, go, I'm sure, going nuts over what Jesus and his disciples themselves were doing, violating their regulations on the Sabbath. And so they called Jesus out and his disciples out. They essentially say, look, your disciples are doing, you can read it there, they're doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, verse 2. Now here's an interesting thing to note. Another one of their rules, so the point that I'm trying to make is the Sabbath kind of lays out this idea of no work. And they took that and created hundreds of additional rules about what that specifically means. Okay, you see? And so they've added to it. They've increased man's burden. One of their rules, in addition to what we've just looked at, was that you were not allowed to go more than 100 yards walking from your home. And the ironic thing is this. If these guys are out in the fields plucking these grains and so on, and these guys are out there watching them do it, then they likely have gone more than 1,000 yards to observe these things from their home. But what I've come to discover, I'm sure you have as well, that's oftentimes the way it is with the legalist. They notice what everybody else is doing wrong, but they somehow justify what it is that they're doing, which is just as wrong according to their particular rules. And so they see this happening and they say, gotcha, you can't do those things. And Jesus responds, verse three, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? This guy always has a Bible verse ready. And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, how he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him. So Jesus refers them back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel, I love the book, great book. Hopefully you've read it recently. In 1 Samuel 21, David and his men are on the run from King Saul. David's not the king yet, um, but he was anointed to be the king, and Saul is trying to have him killed and things like that. And so David and his men are on the run, and they come to this city in southern Israel called Nob, N-O-B. And it was there in Nob where the tabernacle was residing and where the priests were, basically, you know, the tabernacle was the pre-temple. It would move around or whatever, but it was the pre-temple. And so there, there's a priest by the name of Ahimelech. And in the tabernacle, and the same thing happened in the temple, in the holy place, so remember, the temple and tabernacle were divided into two parts. The front part was called the holy place. The back part behind the veil was called the holy of holies, or the most holy place. In the holy place, there was a temple, a table, I should say, that was there. And every single um, week, they would come in, and they would bring 12 ceremonial loaves of bread, and they would sit there on the table. And then every Sabbath, they would come in, they'd bake 12 new loaves, take those out, put the new loaves uh, in their place, okay? So all of that in mind, Leviticus 24, I just told you the story. It says, you shall take fine flour, bake 12 loaves from it, and you shall set them in two piles, six on a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And so this bread that Jesus references that David ate, it was that bread that was removed from this holy place. It would be taken from that holy place, be given to holy men, priests, who would consume it in a different holy place, whatever, a place sanctified 
in that regard. So David and his men show up. They ask Ahimelech, hey, look, we're on the run. Do you have any food? He says, look, we don't have any common bread, but we do have the bread from the, uh, the table of showbread that we're just about to swap out. You can have that. First Samuel 21. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. And that's the bread that David's men are given. Again, that bread is for, the holy, for holy people to be eaten in a holy place, not for David and his men. And the reason why, though, it is given to David and his men, I think Matthew Henry catches it, he says this, is because ritual observances must always give way to moral duty. And so here you have, standing before this priest, a group of hungry men. And he could either let them go hungry, or he could provide food for their, for their sustenance. And he chooses to do the latter. And Jesus makes it clear he's right in doing so. Verse 5 of Matthew 12, Jesus gives another example. And so starting at verse 5, he says, Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And so he gave the example first from history, David's experience, and now he's going to go to the law itself. And in Numbers chapter 28, we learn an interesting thing about the responsibility of the priest on the Sabbath day, whereas we're told to cease from our labor on the Sabbath day, the priest actually, according to Numbers chapter 28, worked twice as hard on the Sabbath day. So they would make a daily sacrifice. On the Sabbath day, they would make a double sacrifice. And so they worked twice as hard on those particular days. Jesus points that to, the, to that example and says, they're not profaning the Sabbath, are they? doesn't really ask the question. But anyhow, we have an example from history, an example from the law, and he, Jesus presents those to show these men that their traditions are wrong. So yes, the law points out that there's to be no work on the Sabbath. But does that mean a mom can't feed her baby on the Sabbath? That would be work, right? Of course it doesn't mean that. So the point is that they've missed the point. That's the point that Jesus is making here when they come up with all of their rules. And so he adds in verse 7, he says, if you had only known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you knew that, you would not have condemned these men, these guiltless men. And then he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now you'll notice those words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You'll notice that they're in quotations. That's a quote from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. And Jesus referenced that Old Testament prophet to point out that the Pharisees, with all of their regulations, had actually missed the heart of God. And they were quick to complete all of these rituals and acts of self-denial, but their hearts were very, very far from God. They were quick to, to do, complete all of these things and do all of these things, but their hearts were far from God. And I, I think about my life, and I wonder, you know what, is that what my faith has become? That, you know, I sort of have just kind of jotted down a list of things that I won't do, a list of things that I, I have to do, and that's really my walk with the Lord is I just do my list. And at the end of the day, I was a good Christian today because I didn't do these things and I did these things. Well, I don't think that's the heart of God. I, I think he wants us to enjoy his presence and relationship with him. And when we do that, suddenly we don't do these things on this list. And we find ourselves doing these things on this list. Does that make sense? I'm using the same word like 52 times here. 
But I think oftentimes our theology of what it means to be a Christian, our practical theology, it really just devolves into a long list of do's and don'ts. And that's a very real danger that all of us need to guard ourselves from falling into. They had wanted Jesus to condemn his disciples for their sin, and instead Jesus condemns them for their sin. I'm sure they love that. I even wrote in my notes in King Jamesian language, they weren't none too much pleased by his doing so. I'm not even sure if that's good English, but whatever. Worked for King James. Anyway, verse 9, Jesus' day, it continues. He goes on from there, and it says, He went on from there, and he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? I think I read that wrong. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of the sheep and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored and healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out, and they conspired against him how to destroy him. I always found that closing verse interesting in their mind it's not okay for Jesus to heal a man on the Sabbath but it is okay to plot the murder of a man on the Sabbath it just doesn't make any sense but let's look more detailed at these verses turn to your neighbor and say let's look more detailed at these verses all right settle down all right so it says in verse 9 that he he went on from there and he entered their synagogue and and the incident that we just read. Now, this story is told in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you read Matthew and Mark, you're sort of left with the impression that right after he leaves, you know, verse 8, where he he walked away from those Pharisees that were kind of criticizing him for picking the grain and so on, that he goes right into the synagogue. The reality is Luke points out that this takes place on another Sabbath day. And what has happened is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they're putting these together, they're not always writing chronologically. Matthew, in particular, is not writing chronologically at all. He's trying to kind of convey a point. So he's taking two different examples that are going to make the same point. And so this isn't the next event that occurs, but it did occur in an additional Sabbath day, and they're all linked together. And as I, this is what I described earlier. It's kind of the lab class of what Jesus was talking about when he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's as if he says, look, we learned about it. Now let's go kind of put this thing into practice. You have a man with a withered hand. Literally, that can be interpreted a hand that had become withered. And so he didn't always, he wasn't born with this withered hand, whatever exactly that means. But through some kind of an accident or something, his hand developed that particular condition. And there's no indication in the passage that he comes to the temple that day to be healed. Luke tells us that he's sitting at the temple, sitting and listening to the teaching. And so he's a guy there. He's got this unfortunate event, this problem that has caused, this event that has caused this problem. And yet there he is back at church, quote unquote, just sitting to learn. You know, I think sometimes what happens in our lives, things come our way that we wish wouldn't come our way. And our response is, well, you know, God, you did me wrong. And, you know, I'm mad at you now. And until you right the wrong, I won't go on with you or, or something like that. And so here you have this fellow, though, something God did him wrong, quote, unquote. But it wasn't the Lord. It was just life circumstances. 
And there he is, he's sitting at the church, the temple, he's listening to the teaching, he wants to see what God might have for him, presumably he's there to worship the Lord. And so gathered there in the synagogue among the rest of the congregation are Jesus, this man with a withered hand, and then a bunch of religious leaders that are eagerly watching to see what Jesus is going to do. Look at verse 7, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 6, 7 is the parallel passage. It says, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Isn't it interesting that they know Jesus so well that the bait, quote-unquote, that they use to get him to sin is actually him doing good in another person's life? And I wonder what the bait would be in my life. You know, people probably parade some, like, naked lady or something in to kind of lead me astray or whatever. It probably wouldn't be the opportunity to do good. You know, oh, we're going to get him. Let's give him an opportunity to do well or something. But that's the bait that they use for Jesus, that, oh, he'll do well, he'll do good, and then we can get him in trouble. You know, I wonder how many other times this man came into the synagogue, the guy with the withered hand, came into the synagogue and the religious leaders were indifferent to him. The religious leaders couldn't be bothered by him. Maybe his hand caused, you know, the the process of coming in and being seated, maybe even caused a little bit of difficulty, and maybe they avoided him because, oh, i got to help that guy again. I don't want to help that guy again. I'll just pretend I didn't see him or whatever. But now that he suits their purposes, they're very interested in this particular guy. Don't you hate that? I hate. I I shouldn't hate things, but I hate this. It's one of those days, I told you. My, my mom's sick. I can say whatever I want. You know what I mean? I hate when people use people for their own benefit. And I think the vast majority of us know when it's happening. And you're like, could you just please? Sorry. That's all I wanted to say. So I certainly hope I don't do that. Well, anyhow, as we saw earlier, the Jews, they had created these man-made regulations. And one of their regulations was that on the Sabbath, since you can't do any work, then you're not allowed to heal a person on the Sabbath. It was one of their regulations. So listen to this, as you have been doing. If somebody fell and cut themselves, you could apply a tourniquet so that it would stop bleeding, but you couldn't put like oil and ointment or in our day maybe a Band-Aid on it because that would be considered work. It's just ridiculous. Come on, folks. But that's the idea that they had. And so, needless to say, Jesus is about to send them over the edge because he's not only going to, like, put a Band-Aid on the guy, he's going to heal the guy in front of everybody. They're a church, you know, synagogue. Well, it seems that, you know, they're just waiting there to watch what Jesus is going to do. Jesus isn't working fast enough for them. So if you look at verse 10, it seems like they pressed the issue. And so they say, Rabbi. And Luke tells us he was actually the one teaching this day. They say, Rabbi, they interrupt him and say, is it lawful for us to heal on the Sabbath? And they were waiting for him to say yes or or something or no or whatever, and they're just going to catch him one way in this particular argument. And Jesus, knowing just fully well what their plan is, everything that they have in mind, Jesus calls the man out into the the middle of the synagogue. The other two passages tell us that. And so Jesus isn't going to say, yeah, it's okay. You know, and maybe most people won't notice but he, he brings right out into the middle. Well, let's, let's talk about this. You, sir, you have a withered hand. Come out here into the middle. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Let's, you know, and he goes in for this big thing. Jesus wants to teach about it. So verse 11, he says, So which one of you who has a sheep that has fallen down into a pit, 
doesn't stop what you're doing, even on the Sabbath, and help that sheep out of the pit. Now, the ultimate question that Jesus is asking is, essentially, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? And so he says this to them there. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He presumes their answer. He's really kind of bringing them to that conclusion. He asks them some, a couple of other questions to lead them there, which is, which one of you has a sheep if it falls doesn't help him out? He kind of asks a question, though it has an exclamation point, but he says, how much more value is a man than a sheep? The point really is to get them to admit that, yeah, of course we would help our sheep out of the pit that it has fallen into. And so Jesus then essentially would be saying, so you're willing to do, good de- do a good deed to help your sheep, but not do a good mean to help your fellow man. You're willing to violate the Sabbath your rules of the Sabbath, you're willing to violate the Sabbath to help your money-making sheep, but you're not willing to violate the Sabbath, your rule of the Sabbath, to help this worthless individual who doesn't earn you any money. He, really what Jesus is doing, he's calling them a hypocrite without actually saying that they're a hypocrite. And they, as they oftentimes did when Jesus kind of posed these questions where the, the answer was the answer they didn't want to give, they don't say anything. And so I suspect, and maybe it's because I'm just in that mood, that Jesus sighs or something, a sigh of disgust, looks at the guy and he says, stretch out your hand. And the man does. Back to its original condition, perhaps better than its original condition. Now in the passage, the attention is immediately turned to the Pharisees' response. That's found in verse 14. It says the, the Pharisees went out, I imagine huffy, you know, in a huff, fixed their robes or whatever, and they took off out of there, and they conspire against Jesus how to destroy him. They, they make their way out of there, and they're so furious with Jesus for calling them out and violating their regulations that they plan to destroy him. Again, how ironic. Don't heal people on the Sabbath, but okay to destroy people on the Sabbath. Well, the natural, for us to just kind of quickly look at the story it brings us right to their response. But I want to look at the man just a little bit before we conclude here because I think there's one more point, an important point, that we should draw our attention to. Do you notice that Jesus, he brings the man out into the midst of the synagogue. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, you almost expect the guy to say, I can't stretch out my hand. That's my problem. I have a withered hand. You don't think I tried to stretch out my hand? Time and time again, when the problem first started developing and, you know, one day in bed after I said my prayers the night before and I woke up and just wondered if maybe it might work, the Lord answered my prayer. You don't think I've tried to stretch out my hand? You almost expect the guy to say, well, I can't, but Jesus tells him to do so in front of this entire crowd. This is not the first time that Jesus has instructed someone to do something that was impossible for them to do. So you recall in our studies together not too long ago, Matthew chapter 9, verse 7, you have the guy that brings the four, par- the, four, the four men bring the paralyzed guy to the house where Jesus is teaching. They can't get in. They open up the roof and they drop him down. Jesus said to that guy, get up, take your bed, and go home. Well, the guy couldn't. I'm paralyzed. I can't do that. We have another example. This is in John chapter 5. Almost the same scenario. There you have an invalid who had been such for 38 years by the pools there of Bethesda. And Jesus says to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. Now, if you look closely at that particular, and the guy does, if you look closely at that particular passage, John chapter 5, 
Again, Jesus' instructions, get up, take your bed, and then go your way. And the verse will go on to say, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So over here, get up, take your bed, and walk, go home. And then over here, he took his bed and he went home. What's missing there is the get up part of it, right? It's presumed, and it happens just before the healing. So the man is healed, he takes his bed, and he goes home. So that, what that tells us is that the man, just like the other guy, had to get up in faith that Jesus' instructions were actually going to bring healing in his life. And that's what's occurring in this particular passage. Jesus is asking the man with the withered hand to do that which was physically impossible for him to do. That is, reach out his hand. And for him to do so, he would have to trust that Jesus was going to provide him with the ability to actually do so. There's another st- example in the Bible. Matthew chapter 14. Our men are studying the book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And it's based on the passage in Matthew chapter 14. And I would just suggest to you, Jim made the announcement earlier. I've read a lot of books. Obviously, the Bible is my favorite. You know, I have to say that or whatever. Um, so don't presume it's not. But... I believe that book, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat, has had one of the most profound impacts on my walk with Jesus than any other book that I've read. It's that significant of a book. I really think the guy hits it. Anyway, you should go to the study, man, uh, or whatever. There's my, uh, my pitch for the book, and I really mean it. Anyhow, in Matthew chapter 14, you have Peter being commanded by the Lord to step out of the boat of water. So the disciples are in this boat. Jesus comes walking out on the water. The sea's really rough and and all of this. And Peter sees him there. He said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out there on the water. And Jesus says, come on out on the water. And so Peter now is faced with obeying a command that is physically impossible for him to obey. And the scripture says that he does it. Now, Peter doesn't get out of the boat because he's concluded, I got this. I can walk on water. Anybody can walk on water. That's not why he gets out on the boat. He, he gets out in obedience of the boat onto the water in response to what the Lord had told him to do. And so again, he got out of the boat, not because he was able to walk on water, but because he was confident that the Lord who called him to walk on the water would enable him to walk on the water. And so these examples of the paralytic and the invalid and Peter walking on the water and now this man with the withered hand, examples of people that are called to do something that is impossible and they're going to have to step out in faith to do it. They're the same type of examples that you and I are asked to do in a spiritual sense of things. You and I are told to go and sin no more, John chapter 8. I can't do that. I cannot in my own strength go and do that. That is an impossibility. Because inevitably, even if I'm on a roll and I'm having a good day, the pride begins to set in and I sin in pride. Like, look at me, I'm something else or whatever. Go and sin no more. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us to forgive as we have been forgiven. For many of us, a lot of us, that's an impossibility because we have been hurt in such a deep way by certain people That it's almost an impossibility. It feels as if it's an impossibility for us to do. Jesus tells us to die to ourselves daily. You know who my favorite person is on earth? Me. Me. I don't want to die to myself daily. I want to live to myself daily. I want everyone else to live to me daily. And yet Jesus says, this guy. Jesus says, die to yourselves 
daily. And for every one of those, those are impossibilities. You can list a, a whole host of more. There's two options in, responses to, in response to those commands. One is to say, I can't do that. I can't die to myself daily. I can't forgive that person that has hurt me. I can't go and sin no more. That's one response. The other, or the second response is to get up, to start walking, and to trust him to enable you to keep his commands. This man knew this lesson, this point. He knew that the commandments of God are the enablements of God. This man knew what you and I have to come to know as well, that God never commands us to do something that he won't empower us to do as well. And our job is not to understand how it will happen. Our job is to simply to step out in faith that it will happen. I love what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said this about this verse. He said, it's when we face the impossible and dare to say in the presence of Christ, I cannot do this thing, but I will at your command. Then in a moment, the cannot is canceled and the can becomes the mighty truth concerning life. Love that. Now, some of you might think, all right, man, we get it. You're beating a dead horse. Here's why I think this is so significant, at least to me. Because for nearly a year of my walk with the Lord, when I came to know Christ, I was about, what was I, about 17 years old. For about a year of my walk with the Lord, I compromised with sin. And I did so for one reason. It's because I thought it would be impossible for me to overcome that sin. Does that make sense? I compromised with sin. I gave in to temptation because I felt it would be impossible for me to not give in to temptation. I continually said to myself, I can't, and I was stuck declaring that over and over again in my mind, and I lived in compromise for 10 months of my walk with the Lord. I wasted 10 months of his presence on a daily basis that was offered to me because I convinced myself it was an impossibility. But then, and I remember the event, I remember when he did. Goosebumps galore, my friends. Goosebumps galore. I remember the day when the Lord entered in to that failure. It was as if he was in the room with me, and he came on the scene, and he said, look, man, get out of the boat and start walking by faith. He said, stretch out your hand and be healed. He said, take up your bed and go home. What he said to me really was, stop looking at the impossibility and just do what I told you to do and take a step of faith. And I'll enable you the rest of the way from there. And so I'll leave you with this. Over the years, I've found it helpful to memorize certain Bible verses, maybe memorize certain quotes like I just shared with you or something like that. Usually pretty short little things to just sort of remind myself when I come into certain circumstances. And so there are times when life gets real busy and I feel like I'm running and I'm not really... Uh, home as much as I, I need to be, or whatever it may be, as far as my family, or even cutting the lawn, those kinds of things. And I remember a verse from Song of Solomon, which talks about keeping everybody else's vineyard, but your own vineyard is not kept. And I just kind of say those words to myself. Everybody else's vineyard is kept, but your own is not kept. And it's just a reminder for myself to kind of get back on track of where I need to be and what I need to be doing, repeating it to myself, clinging to that truth as I seek to live for the Lord. And so in the context of what we're talking about, here's a little phrase that I memorized years ago that, that helps me. And it is this, it's that the commandments of God are the enablement of God. That God will never command you to do something that he himself also will not command you to do. 
And so I throw it out there. Perhaps it's something you might want to re- memorize and, and, uh, and meditate on as you seek to walk with the Lord. If God calls you to do it, he will empower you to do it. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you and we love your word. Father, we're blessed by the opportunity to come and meet with you. And Lord, we opened up our time today by praying that you would come and just minister to our hearts. And Lord, we sense that you have done exactly that. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit in the life of each of us that believe. And we pray that your spirit would continue to minister as he has been this morning. But Lord, even as we go from here, as we make our way back to work or wherever next week, uh, Monday, Lord, cause your word to resonate in our hearts. Just keep us moving forward with you. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.